Greetings and welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, author and Algonquin Park storyteller. As you know, I've written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park. In this episode, I'm going to focus on using a modified walking tour as a vehicle to share some of the forgotten stories about Rock Lake Station, a community composed of railwaymen, loggers, tourists, leaseholders, and all their families that used to exist where the Rock Lake Campground is today. First, a bit of context. As you know, Algonquin Park was established in 1893, but Rock Lake was not part of it until the park's boundaries were expanded in 1911. Today, Rock Lake is well known as the location of one of the main public campgrounds in the park. Rock Lake Station, located at milepost 156.1, was originally one of the five Algonquin Park train stations along Lumberman, J.R. Booth, Ottawa, Arnprior, and Perry Sound Railways. Today, when you look down the main campground access road from the gatehouse, you can see that it runs straight as a die for about a kilometer. This is because the road was once the rail bed, which contained a single track with several short spurs that ran to nearby Barnett Lumber Company operations. Access to Rock Lake was by rail until limited train service from Whitney ended in 1945. The road from Highway 60 into Rock Lake was constructed in 1946 and the Rock Lake Campground opened in 1955. The best place to start our walk together, down memory lane, is at the bridge crossing Rock Creek. With your back to the campground gatehouse, walking about 100 paces up the road from the bridge, on your left-hand side is about where the original Rock Lake Station number one was built. With the Morse code call letters UF, it was an instrumented boxcar with the station at one end and a small living accommodation at the other. Freight service started November 1896 and passenger service began the following January. The first station agent, William John McCourt, was originally hired to manage the nearby gravel pits at Whitefish Lake that provided the ballast needed for the new railbed. He was also a trained in the use of the telegraph and so was quickly hired as the station agent when that became known. In addition to being a stop where steam locomotives were supplied with water, it didn't take long for Rock Lake Station to evolve into a major tourist camping and fishing area. This was in addition to some of the nearby lumber operations. Tourists who were interested in escaping from the city for an inexpensive summer vacation would come from all over Canada and the northeastern portions of the United States. Rock Lake had a different, much more rustic feel than the soon popular Highland Inn. For many women, the dress of the day was often not the more common long dresses, but breeches and high leather camping boots with colorful jackets and hats. About another 50 paces from the station, this time on the right-hand side of the road, then situated between the main rail track and the spur sat a gulland water stand pipe. It was fed by a large pipe that came down from the center of the water tower that was located in what was then a field about 200 feet away towards the lake. The water tower location was ideal due to its close proximity to Rock Creek, where water flowing from Fisher Lake provided an ample supply for the thirsty steam locomotives. However, to get the water from the creek to the water tower and from the water tower to the locomotives was no easy matter. First, it had to be pumped to the water tower from the creek using a steam pump. From there, gravity fed the water stand pipe, which rotated in such a way that it could fill the train steam engines from either direction. 
An observant railway enthusiast can still see the foundations for both the standpipe and the water tower near the Rock Lake Campground Access Road. A fellow named Charlie Burns was hired for 50 cents a day to both man the steam water pump and fill the locomotives that passed through several times a day. Since Charlie had to work seven days a week, he built himself a small cabin without permission from the railway officials on the northeast side of Rock Creek. No one noticed or cared until the area became officially part of the park in 1911, at which point the decision was made to handle these quote-unquote squatters on a case-by-case -case basis. As late as 1945, though his cabin was long gone, the remains of his two-holer outhouse could still be seen at the second bend in the creek, where once an old wooden wagon trail bridge crossed the creek. A few more paces down the road will take us to William McCourt's grocery store in his home, Shauna Lodge. For everyone in the local area, the arrival of the train was, of course, the highlight of the day. Instantaneously, the train platform, which was really just a flat area of ground, would become a beehive of activity with people, produce, and equipment coming and going on and off the train. In the summer of 1897, Ida Frobel, the younger sister of the first OA and PS railway foreman John Frobel's wife Tilly, came to visit. Instantly smitten with the dashing station agent, she married him in 1899, even though she was only 16 years of age to his 29 years. Over the course of the next few years, they had three children, Oriole in 1900, Myrtle in 1902, and Vernon in 1907. In 1901, across the tracks from the water standpipe, William McCourt built or acquired, it's not clear which, a 10-foot by 20-foot log cabin and stayed there until 1903, when he bought the larger building next door from the Barnett Lumber Company. Christening it Shauna Lodge, meaning happy times in the Algonquin language, at least according to family lore, it became the homestead for his growing family and other relatives as time went on. As the local telegraph agent, and therefore aware of just about everything that was going on, it didn't take McCourt long to realize that there was money to be made from this burgeoning tourist trade. So after the family moved into Shauna Lodge, he turned the original log homestead into a grocery and outfitting store to cater to the new campers and fishermen. As the local park ranger was to report just before McCourt opened his store, I have heard many complaints in regard to the difficulties of obtaining fresh milk and the necessities of life. In fact, some of the tourists are threatening to abandon Rock Lake altogether. A store in a small way would be a great accommodation and it would assist materially in making Rock Lake a more flourishing resort. The McCourt store was one of the first outfitters of the day, renting canoes, paddles, life jackets and camping supplies to visiting campers. The groceries were several notches above other places and handmade ice cream was a visitor favorite. Naturally, bait and tackle were available. One year, a barrel of apples from the Niagara District arrived by express baggage. In it was a note from a picker who must have had a special liking for Rock Lake, who advised them that the barrel had been picked so that each apple was exactly the same size and that he had spent an entire Sunday picking the special barrel for the Rock Lake community. Shauna Lodge was also a bustling place. For visiting friends, mealtime in the 1910s was a festive affair. After ascertaining the number of guests and the extent of their hunger, Ida would suggest to McCourt that he meander up to the upper bay of Rock Lake to bring in a certain number of lake trout. Usually within a half an hour, he'd be back with the precise number requested. In 1915, the railway deeded most of the land around Rock Lake Station back to the Crown. 
Eventually, in 1921, McCourt was issued a 21-year renewable lease for a one-acre parcel. In 1947, McCourt died, and the lease passed first to his wife, Ida, and later to his children, Oriel, Vernon, and Myrtle. Alas, cottaging on the edge of a public campground had its challenges, and the lease was given up in 1987. Shauna Lodge was burnt to the ground soon after, and for many years all that remained was the Bell Telephone Company box in Ida's lilac bushes and a few of her roses in what was once her back garden. Today the area is just an expanse of flat ground across the road near site number 13. Continuing on our tour for another hundred paces or so up the road, you'll come to about where a new Rock Lake station was built sometime between 1905 and 1910 on the left-hand side of the road, just to the east of Shauna Lodge. About halfway between the water tower and the Gulland water pipe, just kitty corner from the station, a separate section house was built on the Rock Lake side of the tracks. By 1929, the building was no longer needed by the railway, so it was leased to John Petrachuk, a section man with the railway, and later, in 1940, to Beulah Eady, wife of the local park ranger, Stuart Eady. According to local legend, Beulah Eady was the only woman who could make bread, pump gas, and collect frogs all at the same time. Her blueberry pies and Chelsea buns were infamous in the local area. As one resident fondly remembered, we called them sinkers because they were so heavy and yeasty one would sink if one went swimming after eating two of them. And eat them we sure did. Beulah also loved music and would organize dances that were held every Wednesday and Saturday evening during the summers sometimes at the section house and occasionally at the Barclay Estate Boathouse. She would hire bands and fiddle players from Whitney, and even she would sometimes do the calling. These dances were great fun and attended by all of the local residents. To get around up and down the rail line, inspecting the tracks and making visits to park headquarters on Cache Lake, the railway provided hand cars purchased from the Casey Jones Manufacturing Company. The railway wouldn't pay to add motors as they thought that motorizing these hand cars was a luxury that was not needed when pumping by hand would do the job just as well. Though desirable, a motorized vehicle was costly, about a month's wages. But a useful and much improved alternative was the Velocipede. This was a three-wheel pump contraption with one wheel following the outer rail of the rail track. Later, gas-powered hand cars were made available and stored in a shed near where the original Rock Lake station was located. However, though not a section man, and with little need to go up and down the line, William McCourt would not be outdone. He acquired a Fairmont motor car, which was a platform with steel tires and oak wood-spoked wheels run by a single cylinder gas motor. A belt drove a pulley on the front axle, and its top speed was about 10 miles per hour. His grandson, Robert Taylor, can remember sitting on the gas car in the back shed on a wooden Salata tea box, thinking he was really somebody. We kids had a special toy. We would put it, the old Fairmont gas car, on the rails, and I was allowed to take all of the local kids up and down a nearby siding. To go in reverse, the spark was cut, and if quickly enough connected at the correct instant, the motor would stop and go in reverse. Most of the time, we couldn't go out on the mail rail line as the way was blocked by a speeder that was owned by the local Department of Lands and Forests Ranger Stuart Eady. Once, however, the speedy wasn't there, so neighbor Fred Allen and I decided to go for it and headed to Menwate Station on the Barclay Estate. It was great fun getting there, but when it came time to return, we found that the engine wouldn't go into reverse and we were stuck. We had to push it all the way back and paid a high price when it derailed as we got caught and were grounded for a week. 
Later, after the trains had abandoned the line and up until the rails were lifted in 1954, the Fairmont gas car was used by the McCourt family for many berry-picking expeditions to the end of the line at Lake of Two Rivers. If you look now towards Rock Lake, it's hard to believe that in the late 50s, on the field sloping down to Rock Creek, behind the former section house, the Department of Lands and Forests built another outdoor amphitheater for the interpretive programs. A 110-volt gasoline generator was installed, which ran from morning until 10 p.m. to supply electricity to the office and the nearby washrooms. According to a local resident, though the noise eventually became white noise, the real problem was the dust generated by all of the cars coming to the shows two times a week. Eventually, the program at Rock Lake was discontinued. We're thinking around 1968. If we continue our walk down the former railway bed, we get to a point where, just before the Booth Rock Trail begins, you can see Rock Lake Campground Section B. Prior to the campground's creation, it was called Box Point, named after Billy Bock, the former caretaker of the Fleck Estate, which we'll talk about a little bit later, who had settled there on patented land apparently given to him by the family in 1929. Here, Bock built three cabins on the site that he rented out to tourists at a rate of $65 a month, with $35 extra if the renter wanted to include wood and ice. Later, after McCourt retired, Bach took over supplying groceries, gasoline, milk, and coal oil to the cottagers. At the request from the other cottagers, Rock Lake resident Reverend Leo Ebinger, a Lutheran, would hold a church service most Sundays. Held on Bach's front porch, music was provided by a pump organ played by Bach's wife Gertrude, or his daughter Louise, who later became a deaconess, and sometimes Ebinger's daughter Elizabeth. As echoed by many of the box tenants who went on to obtain leases in the area, what a wonderful place the box was for the three summers we rented one of their cabins. With its chicken coop, which was a great place for finding worms, the canoe trippers stopping in at the store to reprovision, Mrs. Bach not wanting to sell any one person two of anything just in case someone arrived needing one, the great sand beaches where we learned to swim and dive for clams, Blueberry Hill for berry picking, the jigger to hitch rides on once in a while, the old schoolhouse to explore, and of course the railway tracks to test your balance on when you were out picking raspberries. Another role that Billy Bach held was that of a local taxi driver. Using a large 20-foot flat-bottom boat that became known as Bach's Pointer, he would transport goods and people to their leaseholds. Another job he had responsibility for was to cut blocks of ice from the lake and store the blocks in the community ice house located on nearby Whitefish Lake. Many a leaseholder's son had a summer job delivering the ice to residents on both lakes. The local ice house contained thick ice blocks packed in sawdust, and for the local children it was a marvelous treat to get the large ice chips to eat on a hot day. Bach was also instrumental in getting a public school established in 1934. Located nearby, up by Rose Pond, near the Booth Rock Trail parking lot, the school was a one-room school named SS Number no. 1 Nightingale and was part of the Halliburton School Board. The school was needed to educate not just Bach's growing family of seven, but also the railway section man foreman's children and the children of the staff from the nearby Fleck Estate. Mrs. Bach and later the park ranger's wife, Mrs. Eady, were the teachers. In 1955, Billy Bach died, and soon after his cottages were acquired by the Ministry of Natural Resources. The sites were cleared and became Rock Lake Public Campsite, Section B. If you continue along the Booth Rock Trail, taking the route along the water's edge, 
About halfway up the trail on the point, you'll come to what are now the remains of the Fleck Barclay estate. In the early years of the 20th century, Andrew Fleck, the secretary treasurer of J.R. Booth's operations, had obtained patent and timber rights for 7,000 acres of land around the east side of Rock Lake. In 1909, just before the Nightingale and Lawrence townships became part of Algonquin Park, it is believed that Fleck surrendered most of this vast acreage for ownership of 700 acres on the eastern shore of Rock Lake, plus the two islands. J.R. Booth's daughter, Helen Gertrude Booth, married her father's second-in-command, Andrew Walker Fleck. Together, they commissioned the building of Menwate Lodge, meaning Place of Sunshine, on this point. The original house was featured in Canadian Architect and Builder magazine in 1900. In addition to the house, there was a stable with an attached blacksmith shop. By the water on the north side was a single-slip launch launching spot with a tall flagpole. A small train station was built and replaced in 1920 with a large building on the curve just past the private siding. This became the caretaker's residence. Billy Bach resided there until 1935 and George Peterson until the mid-1950s. The Flex would arrive with the attending staff in their private rail car number 99, called Opiongo, that would be parked at the booth's private rail siding located on the hillside of the tracks. Until her death, when she arrived at Menwate, Mrs. Fleck would descend from the rail car and climb aboard a stone boat sled on which was nailed a wicker chair. Billy Bach would stow the luggage, take up the reins for the horse named Nellie, and transport her through the woods to the house about half a mile away. Bach had been a carpenter by trade, hired by Booth to help build the house, and had stayed on with his wife Gertrude, the daughter of the park superintendent, George Bartlett. Sitting on a mass of bedrock, the house had an enormous balcony surrounding the house on three sides with a huge iron fire escape that hung from the second floor. The house had acetylene gas lights throughout, the early 20th century newest invention, that were turned on by a twist of a tap that hissed before the matches lit. The Flex always had a great entourage of guests, staff, and relatives. If it was wild strawberry or blueberry time, the train would stop at nearby favorite picnicking spots on the way. Everyone would get out and pick away until the brakeman would announce that it was time to reboard the train. When in residence, a daily ritual was for Billy Bach to take Mrs. Fleck on a fishing expedition in her rowboat. As her granddaughter Joan Barclay Drummond fondly remembered, every afternoon, weather permitting, would find Granny Fleck sitting in the stern of the happy hour, her lovely double-ended rowboat, on a wicker chair with the legs sawed off. Billy would row her around the lake, cigar in mouth. Three puffs and one spit were his routine with that cigar. The spit, because naturally Mrs. Fleck wouldn't catch anything until Billy had spat on her bait or tackle. There they discussed all sorts of worldly matters, while Granny in her Dr. Lock boots, Queen Mary dress, choker, hat and gloves, had her line baited and fish de-hooked by Billy. In 1935, Helen Gertrude Booth Fleck, sold the original Fleck estate to her daughter, Jean, who had, in 1919, married a lawyer and later Quebec judge, Gregor Barclay. Rather than demolish the original residence, the two decided to extend the old building by adding two wings and a second story. The front glassed in pavilion and the porches were removed and replaced with a new extended front and screened-in porches on either side of the ground level. 
The rear of the house is enlarged as well, including the addition of a huge walk-in ice house with double walls, one side to be used for meats and fish and the other for fruits and vegetables. The judge was also an avid gardener. He would send up every June all sorts of flowers, such as geraniums and salvias and seeds. Flower beds that contained daylilies and lilac bushes were added front and back, and a huge lawn was added in two levels that extended from the lake to the large patio in front of the house. All of these invasive species would, of course, not be tolerated today. A new boathouse was erected for the east side of the property with three slips and a large room upstairs with a balcony overlooking the southeast of the lake. The boathouse doors rolled up and down with ropes. The upstairs area of the boathouse had a huge fireplace at one end and a dance floor above the three-foot-wide boat slips. There was a ping-pong table, a hockey game table, and an old speaker wind-up gramophone. Sometimes the space was used as both a local dance hall and meeting place for the local Rock Lake residents. During World War II, a Red Cross group of Rock Lake women, led by Mrs. Barkley and the local park ranger's wife, Mrs. Eady, met twice a week for five weeks sewing and knitting bandages and other needed articles for the war effort. The Barclays also built a paved double tennis court on the highest point of land on the Barclay estate, surrounded by huge pine trees. It was located on the walking path from the estate main building to the two stone gate pillars at the road entrance by the railway bed. According to George Pearson, the chip stones for the tennis courts were hauled in by train and then rolled into a flat surface with one of those rollers filled with water. We rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled, he said, and then put tar on it. In 1955, park policy changed with a desire to return it to a more natural state, including intent to buy back any existing private patented land. Not surprisingly, the first target was the Fleck Barkley estate. Rumors circulated that perhaps it would become a luxury resort, or a senior retirement residence, or leased to a nonprofit organization for health or recreational purposes. None of these options would turn out to be viable, and in 1955, all the land and buildings became the property of the Crown and were burned, leaving only some of the foundations that can still be discerned today in some spots. In 1933, the main trestle at Cache Lake was condemned, which meant that twice-a-week train service from the west only went as far as Cache Lake, and from the east, it stopped at Lake of Two Rivers. Getting to Rock Lake area became a challenge. In 1936, Highway 60 through the park was completed, but this didn't help as there was no access road to Rock Lake. Some would drive to Whitney, leave their cars in storage there, and connect with a train for Rock Lake that left Whitney at 1 o'clock on Mondays or 8 a.m. on Wednesdays. For a while, there was also a shuttle service run by Russell White, which ran on the tracks from Whitney to Canoe Lake Station, but it was discontinued in May of 1936. A road into Rock Lake wasn't completed until 1946. The remaining train tracks were removed in 1955. Today, the 12.7-kilometer old railway bike trail takes you along the route to Lake of Two Rivers. I hope you've enjoyed this little trip down memory lane to recall both the people and the stories of what used to be at Rock Lake Station so many years ago. If you'd like to read more about Rock Lake and its history, check out my book, Rock Lake Station Settlement Stories Since 1896, which is available both at the Friends of Algonquin Park Bookstore or Amazon, or you can reach me directly through my website, algonquinparkheritage.com.